0: Discerninghearts.com, in cooperation with the Oblates of the Virgin Mary, presents Spiritual Desolation Be Aware, Understand, Take Action with Father Timothy Gallagher. Father Gallagher is a member of the Oblates of the Virgin Mary, a religious community dedicated to retreats and spiritual formation according to the spiritual exercises of St. Ignatius of Loyola. He is featured on several series found on the Eternal Word Television Network. He is also author of numerous books on the spiritual teachings of St. Ignatius of Loyola and the venerable Bruno Lanteri, founder of the Oblates of the Virgin Mary, all published by the Crossroads Publishing Company. This particular series is based in part on Chapter 4 of Setting Captives Free, personal reflections on Ignatian discernment of spirits, Spiritual Desolation, Be Aware, Understand, Take Action, with Father Timothy Gallagher. I'm your host, Chris McGregor.
1: What I'd like to do from this uh, new book um, is look at some further considerations with regard to spiritual desolation. And the first is a question that always comes up, inevitably comes up whenever I present the rules. Usually in about midpoint in the rules, after we've described spiritual desolation, a hand will be raised and someone will say, well, what about the experience of Mother Teresa, for example? How do we understand that in the light of what Ignatius is saying? Was that spiritual desolation? Was that something different? And sometimes people who have uh, a background in Carmelite spirituality will raise the same question, but in more broad terms now, using the language of St. John of the Cross. St. John of the Cross speaks about the dark night, Is that the same as spiritual desolation? Is it something different than spiritual desolation? If it is different, in what does the difference consist? How do we recognize the one and the other? And what is the appropriate response to the one and the other? So obviously these are important questions because depending on the answers, we're going to respond to our experience in one way or in another. Now I'll say here before we go any further that the the guardrail, the safety net in all of this is always conversation with a wise and competent spiritual guide. So that if we have personal questions about, especially the dark night, and we're wondering whether something we're experiencing is that dark night, what I'm going to do now is give general considerations about this. But in the one-on-one, the ideal always, if we can do it, and I reference the fact that it's not always easy, that would be, obviously, the ideal. So, to look at this whole issue now uh, in general terms, the key to answering this question about the difference, if there is a difference, between spiritual desolation and dark, and the dark night is to use the terms clearly. So, spiritual desolation, we don't need to say any more about. We've, that's what we've been doing, heaviness of heart on the level of our relationship with God the dark night now if we're going to be more specific john of the cross speaks about two dark nights the dark night of sense and the dark night of spirit and each of these two dark nights has an active and a passive component so for example the dark night of sense the active component would be the efforts that we make to purify the level of the senses in our humanity so that it becomes receptive, able to receive God. The whole thrust of what John of the Cross is doing, uh, after he he paints this absolutely captivating ideal, especially in the spiritual canticle and the living flame of love. In the other works, The Ascent of Mount Carmel and The Dark Night, he is describing the pathway toward that um, all-consuming, ineffably beautiful communion with the Lord which is love which is the goal but there's a path toward it and he describes that in detail and the essential uh, element in the path is self-emptying he spoke about this earlier as making space for god so finally you get to the nada you know where the where the human person is completely available to god and then god can fill us so the dark night of sense is an experience of prayer an experience given by God, which is painful because it is purifying the level of the senses in our humanity so that they become empty of whatever would make them less receptive to God. And there is an active component. We need to do our own part in this. But in the pie chart, almost all of the pie chart, is the passive dark night, which is what God does. So that's the passive uh, dark night of sense. And then something similar after that phase has been experienced, later on God may call the person through the dark night of the spirit so that now the spiritual level of the human person becomes emptied in a way that allows it to be completely receptive to God and receive the higher stages of communion with God in infused mystical contemplation. And again, there is an active component, but by far the the major piece in this is God's work, where the person receives this experience of prayer, which is painful because it's too much light for the person. R- the person is just not able yet to receive it, and a purification is needed in order to be able to receive fully all of the love and communion that God wants to give. So when I speak about the dark night now, what I in- mean by that primarily is the passive dark night of sense and of of the spirit. Now, having said that, the great difference between the two experiences is immediately evident. Is spiritual desolation different from the dark night? The answer is absolutely and resoundingly yes. They are completely different experiences. The spiritual desolation is a work of the enemy, discouragement on the level of our relationship with God, The dark night is painful, yes, but it is a work of God. It is an experience of prayer, which is always a gift and grace of God. And its purpose is to lead a person to a greater availability, to deeper communion and a deeper bond of love with the Lord, and therefore fruitfulness as well. So, spiritual desolation is a work of the enemy. The only appropriate response to it is to reject it. The dark night is a work of God. And the only appropriate response to that, therefore, is to accept it. And we see that uh, in so many of the saints and the growth that comes from it. In the light of that, we can go back to the experience of St. Teresa of Calcutta. If we read the book which describes her experience, Come Be My Light, it's very clear that her spiritual directors who worked with her understood her prolonged darkness as the classic dark night in John of the cross's sense, what was different about her experience of the dark night, not entirely different because there are other examples like this, uh, for example, St. Paul of the Cross who had a protracted experience of the dark night, but what is uh, special to her experience is the the duration with just a very few interruptions for fifty years in her life. Now, if we read classic spiritual writers like Garagu LaGrange, for example, they discuss this experience of the dark night in some of the saints. That is, that God gives the dark night so that the person will be purified and ready to receive a deeper communion of love with God. In some cases, these writers will say, even after the dark night has accomplished that work, God will permit the dark night to continue in the person because that dark night now becomes redemptive and a source of grace for others. And I think it would be difficult to find a more uh, striking example of that than the life of St. Teresa of Calcutta, Mother Teresa, whose life, in a way that few saints' lives have, touched the entire world and blessed us people beyond counting, and continues, obviously, to do that today. So that would be the understanding. Um, St. Teresa of Calcutta experienced the classic dark night. And in this understanding of it, it was continued because her life through that became, as she so, so often said, something beautiful for God that led so many people to God. Now, there's another thing that we need to say about this issue of spiritual desolation and the dark night. And it's the reason why this issue gets confused at times because of a very legitimate expanded use of the metaphor dark night dark night is a metaphor it's a very rich metaphor and in keeping with the nature of metaphor it can be applied to a wide variety of experiences and that's why i said that the the, the key thing to answer the question about the difference between spiritual desolation and the dark night is to see the terms clearly, exactly as Ignatius uses the one and John of the Cross uses the other. Having said that, however, many people do use the term dark night in an expanded way. And just some examples of this, in one of her letters in 1955, Flannery O'Connor writes that right now, the whole world seems to be going through a dark night of the soul, which is obviously a, a very different understanding of the metaphor dark night then John of the Cross's specific use of it for a person who, in terms of the dark night of sense, is right now being called by God into the initial stages of infused contemplation and therefore goes through this purifying experience of prayer. What she's referring to is her sense of the weakening of faith and the the harmful tendencies which uh, appear to be growing in the world And she looks at that and sees that the whole world seems to be undergoing this kind of spiritually dark experience. Dr. Gerald May, in his book, Grace and Addiction, speaks about a dark night of recovery in members of AA. So, these would be people who, through alcohol, have hit rock bottom at a certain point. Their lives have fallen apart. And there's great pain And darkness and heaviness, and out of that is born the urgent need for a change, for a recovery. So he speaks of that experience of the person struggling with alcohol when everything falls apart as a dark night. Legitimate use of the metaphor, but obviously very different from the way that John of the Cross speaks about it. Elsewhere, uh, Dr. May speaks of what he calls a corporate dark night in social systems, so in a culture, in a business, in an academic institution, and so on, family, you could get to a point where there's a heaviness, a darkness, that pervades the entire social system, and discouragement and uh, anxiety about the future, uh, struggles with present issues. And obviously, again, that's a very legitimate use of the term dark night, but obviously, again, very different from what uh, John of the Cross is describing. And then at the time when the Passion of the Christ uh, came out in one of the interviews that Mel Gibson gave, he described an earlier period of his life when things, when he was wild and uh, got into a situation of great emptiness uh, in his life. He described that period in his life as a dark night of the soul again a legitimate use of it in in terms of my spiritual life things reached a very dark point and there was an urgent need for a change but again obviously very different from what john of the cross is speaking about and then finally to give one more instance of this this is saint john paul ii who is speaking to carmelites And he says, the term dark night is now used of all of the spiritual life, and not just a phase of the spiritual journey in the way that John of the Cross uses it. The saints, that is John of the Cross doctrine, is now invoked in response to this unfathomable mystery of human suffering. So, St. John Paul II extends the use of the term dark night to the entirety of the experience of suffering. And probably many of us um, will resonate with that when we've gone through heavy times in our lives with uh, physical struggles, financial, family matters, work-related matters, church issues. We'll find that that metaphor seems very appropriate to describe what we're experiencing. So again, uh, St. John Paul II, who is a master of John of the Cross, obviously, and knows very well how St. John of the Cross uses the term now expands its use to the whole mystery of suffering in general. So, all of those uses of the term dark night are valid, but in order to answer our initial question about the relationship between spiritual desolation and the dark night, we really need to focus specifically on John of the Cross's use of the term.
0: We'll return to spiritual desolation Be aware, understand, take action with Father Timothy Gallagher in just a moment. Did you know that you can obtain a free app which contains all your favorite Discerning Hearts programs? Father Timothy Gallagher, Dr. Anthony Lillis, Archbishop George Lucas, Father Mauritius Fildi, and so many more, including episodes from Inside the Pages can be obtained on the discerning hearts free app this also includes all the novenas and devotionals and prayers including the holy rosary and stations of the cross the chaplet of saint michael and the seven sorrows of our lady all available on the discerning hearts free app visit the itunes and google play app stores to obtain your free discerning hearts app today A prayer of St. Ignatius of Loyola.
2: Soul of Christ, sanctify me. Body of Christ, save me. Blood of Christ, inebriate me. Water from the side of Christ, wash me. Passion of Christ, strengthen me. O good Jesus, hear me. Within thy wounds, hide me. Suffer me not to be separated from thee. From the malignant enemy, defend me. In the hour of my death, call me and bid me come to thee, that with thy saints I may praise thee, forever and ever. Amen.
0: We now return to Spiritual Desolation. Be aware, understand, take action, with Father Timothy Gallagher. It's so interesting, as you were going through those different comparisons, that from Flannery O'Connor all the way to St. John Paul, that the emphasis on the darkness, the the heaviness, was coming forward. But as you described earlier, and if, in reading John of the Cross, it, you said that sometimes you get so close to the light, maybe you get blinded by it. And all I could think of is when you, first thing in the morning, I'm in a room and it's all darkness. My eyes have been shut and and my husband comes along <laughs> very early in the morning, turns on all the lights in the room. Initially, it's like you have to cover your eyes because you just can't stand all that light. But if I'm going to get up and maneuver in that room, I, it, my eyes have to take time to adjust because otherwise, while I walk through there, I could be stepping and bumping into things and knocking into things and... And gradually, it, it becomes clearer and clearer, and now, okay, now I can see. That, that's a, a difference between a, a light that has been brought into a scene that helps me in the end, as opposed to a, a desolation, you know, it, that attack, essentially, of the enemy.
1: It's a very good analogy. Uh, it's very evident, because we, we all know that experience. So it's not darkness, but the excess of light that causes the the struggle, or in terms of the uh, dark night in John of the Cross's sense, the painful quality. Because we raised that, let's uh, just look at a couple authors. So of the first dark night, that of sense, one classic author, this is Augustin Poulain, his, his classic book, The Graces of in- Interior Prayer writes that it is, the dark night, a prayer of simplicity, characterized by a state of aridity, generally experienced as bitter and painful. So it's prayer. It's a very simplified prayer. Uh, there's an arid quality about it, and the person experiences it as bitter and painful. So to stay with the analogy, what's happening on the spiritual level is like the sudden overexposure to light. It's it's painful not because it's darkness, but because it's just too much and the person is not yet emptied enough to to receive it. That's the whole point of the dark night. And then uh, Father Thomas Dubé writes this, Why are the passive nights painful? Good question. This purification process is a cure of illness and therefore involves a cutting away, a removal of the roots of spiritual maladies, and a separation from the egocentrism that wounds us. In these beginnings of infused prayer, so that's exactly where the dark night of sense comes, when God is now beginning to call the person out of the more active ways of meditating or lectio uh, or or whatever into the more receptive mode. You know, I'm going to interrupt the quote here to say this, that one way I think that we can at least glimpse what we're talking about when we speak of infused contemplative prayer is an experience that we've probably all had at times when maybe we're praying the rosary, saying the liturgy of the hours, meditating on scripture, engaged in lexio, other forms of prayer, and at a certain point we find ourselves now not wanting to say the next prayer or to continue reading in the scripture, but just to let that be and just let our heart be quieted and be with God. And we know that that not saying prayers or not reading is not just emptiness or distraction, but it's letting those go because of a fullness, because of a communion. And we rightly treasure such experiences. With reverence, if I may approach them, those are distant initial glimpses of what can happen when a person's prayer becomes entirely this becomes entirely receptive, and the communion with the Lord becomes rich and deep and beautiful and transforms the person. So the dark nights have their place because they prepare the person for that kind of prayer and that kind of communion and the uh, enormous fruitfulness that they bring. Along these lines, let me quote a line from St. John of the Cross. This is a line that St. Therese loved and quoted often. The smallest movement of pure love of this kind, the kind that we're describing, the smallest movement of pure love is more useful to the church than all other works put together. The smallest movement of pure love is more useful to the church than all other works put together. And it's out of this that St. Therese understands that her vocation is exactly that to be love in the church. So that the more we are faithful to our life of prayer, in in God's providence and in God's timing, prayer grows. We are bringing into our families, our marriages, our parishes, our workplace, our world, something that is of greater value to the Church than all of the works put together, and that is having received love from God, we are able then to respond in love to God and out of that to love others. Uh, Teresa's life, of course, would be but certainly an outstanding example, all she did was love, and in very small things. And she has been called by the popes the greatest saint of modern times. And the benefit, the the beneficial effects of her life and writings are obvious. So that's just to say that there's a reason why God would call a person through the dark night. So to continue with the quotation from uh, Father Dubé, about why the the passive nights are painful. This is a cutting away, a removal of the roots of spiritual maladies, and a separation from the egocentrism that wounds us, so that we become increasingly more selfless, and more able to receive God's love, and therefore to share it. He continues, In these beginnings of infused prayer, God is communicating nothing less than Himself, through a light and love that itself consumes our egocentricism. We do not, however, perceive this communication as light and love, but as darkness and pain. This perception, and this is the reason why the dark night, which is an excess, as it were, of light and love, why it's painful, this perception is due to our incapacity and opaqueness and unlikeness to the divine. Hence, in this night, one perceives the love he is receiving as dryness and emptiness. And then gradually, as the person goes faithfully through this, the person is transformed, becomes more capable of receiving that love, and the, the painful quality subsides, and a whole new depth of love and communion with the Lord uh, enters into the person's life. So, that's, to go back to your analogy, that's just in one author, I think, a very nice description of why the the dark night has that effect it's it's dark not because of the kind of discouraging darkness the enemy brings but because we need to be prepared to receive the fullness of the light and love that god wants to give you know i think it's a good thing for us to discuss this even if we can't say that we've experienced that in our own experience but it's a good thing for us just to even reflect On what prayer can become when the human heart is open to it because it shows us that there is so much more. That's what reading the Saints does, like Therese that I just mentioned or John of the Cross or so many others. They reveal to us what can be and therefore encourage us to continue on the journey. Every year on the Feast of All Saints in the Liturgy of the Hours, the Church has us read in the Office of readings, uh, a selection from St Bernard, where he talks about just reflecting on the saints, and he says, "For myself, I will tell you that when I think of the saints, I feel myself filled with a great longing, and that's what it does uh, I find that uh, since we've raised uh, Saint John of the Cross, that's what he does for me he's There is so much truth in his writing that you feel like a pouring faucet, and all you have is a, l- a little glass, you know." But what he does has this effect, the ascent of Mount Carmel, and from the humble place where we see ourselves in the spiritual life. We look up and there is the high mountain of what holiness can become. And what it does is to undo the limits that we so easily set on ourselves and show us that there's so much more. And what it does is to awaken a desire for more. It's the difference between feeling a little bit unhappily that we have to accept where things are and seeing with hope that so much more lies ahead. And then it has the effect that St. Bernard describes, that when I think of the saints, I feel myself filled with a great longing, with a great desire. And desire is the beginning of the journey, and it's the beginning of growth on the journey. It's one of the things that St. Therese also says is that she experienced over and over in her life that God never gave her a desire except that he meant to fulfill that desire. How much do we, do we desire in the spiritual life? How much do we dare to hope for? So uh, approaching a saint like uh, St. John of the Cross has that wonderful effect. Even though, personally, I'll just say of myself, I feel pretty small <laughs> you know, when I see uh, a man like this. But what it does do is it tells me that... Um, the Lord has so much more in store if I'm willing to stay on the journey.
0: Thank you so much for helping us to have this clarification between the two because as I was listening to you, it seems as though on that dark night, because it is an aspect of prayer and relationship with God, his presence is there in the life of that particular person. Mother Teresa may not have had extraordinary experiences, but there's a sense of God, there's a, an awareness. She kept doing the spiritual practice, she kept going to mass, she kept doing the works of love. And as you described, there in desolation, there's a desire not to do any of that. You're being called to change patterns, to turn away, and there's a lack of hope.
1: So that the response in either case is exactly the contrary. Because the two experiences are from contrary sources. So, as you say, Mother Teresa, faithfully, she's a beautiful witness to accepting God's work, in this case, the dark night, and the fruitfulness of it.
0: Would you say that the experience of Ignatius, for example, when he had that f- initial prompting and in consolation to become a Dominican or to become a Franciscan, and the desire to want, to become like the saints he was reading, but then found in those moments as he grew closer that that wasn't his calling. I mean, that he was in an area where he was maybe confused about how he was supposed to respond in that quest. That That's not desolation.
1: No, that would not be an experience of desolation. In fact, the fact that the delight was there not only when he thought about this living like the saints, But even afterwards, that was his initial. That's when his eyes were opened a little to begin to realize that the enduring quality of happiness that he felt was a sign of where God was leading him. So, no, that's not an experience of spiritual desolation. What you actually have there is a man who, for the first time, is in a personal way discovering the spiritual life as it really can be and what heroic holiness can mean. This is a man who has always wanted the heroic dimension you know to be the the great knight and the deeds of chivalry and the romantic exploits and glory in the world what's happening is that he's discovering now for the first time because his convalescence the long convalescence is allowing him to absorb this through the reading that there is another way to be heroic and that these men like francis and dominic and the others did incredibly heroic things for god and what he homes in on actually is the austerities So he's very new to this. He doesn't have much training at all in the spiritual life. All that this energetic man of 30 who wants to do great things is aware of is that these saints did heroic penances. And if they did it, why couldn't I? Why shouldn't I do it? So it's a very basic level of the spiritual life, understandably, at this point. And in fact, when he does go to Manresa, when his leg is well enough so he can go there, he sets out to imitate these austerity, austerities of the saints, and he does it uh, to a, a rather uh, almost uh, uh, unsettling degree, and in fact did harm his health in some ways that he would carry for the rest of his life, but with the help of a confessor found a better, a better balance. So what we have there is someone who is discovering the spiritual life for the first time, has no real background, for him at this point, heroic holiness means these saints did these heroic penances. I need to to do the same heroic penances that they did. But rapidly, he's going to grow beyond that as he gets uh, so close to the Lord. So no, that's not an experience of spiritual desolation at all, but an initial step in the spiritual life. Now, you know, Ignatius is the master of discernment, but he obviously didn't begin this way. On that journey from Loyola, when he leaves his home, toward Montserrat and Manresa, at one point he encounters a Muslim, and they're riding together, and they have a conversation, and in the conversation Our Lady comes up, and the Muslim says some things with with no bad will at all, but just out of his own background about Our Lady, that Ignatius cannot accept, you know, from our Catholic understanding of Our Lady, and this is his Lady, and he has to uphold the honor of his Lady. And the Muslim at a certain point turns off to where he's going, and Ignatius now uh, is in a quandary. Should I, and you'll see the very uh, initial level of his spiritual journey at this point, what do I do here? Uh, Our Lady's honor has been besmirched in some way. Can I simply let this man go, or do I need to pursue him and kill him, put him to death for what he said? Unsure of what to do, what Ignatius does is that he allows so discernment. Ignatius uh, reaches the fork in the road at which he will either continue his own journey or go off to follow the Muslim and put him to death to hold Our Lady's honor and allows the the mule to make the choice. And the mule, fortunately, in God's providence, chooses uh, the road which has him simply continue his journey. Now, I quote that just to point out that Ignatius did not start out as a master of discernment. He had amazing light from the moment of his conversion on his convalescent bed. His eyes are opened a little. He's introduced into the whole world of discernment. But growth in this was a journey for him as well. So the question that you raise really highlights the fact that we're witnessing Ignatius at a very grace-filled but very initial step in the spiritual life.
0: And the reason I think that jumped out at me, because I think many people, and I know myself, as you're growing and fully um on the spiritual journey, or you're you're moving on the spiritual journey, that you believe you're supposed to be going down a certain path, or you're engaged in it, you feel God has called you to do something, and you begin to hit those roadblocks, or there seems to be some frustration, and you become confused, you become, am I doing the right thing, am I not doing the right thing, and you, you get frustrated and sometimes you can even get depressed and in those types of moments it can be so discouraging that you know it affects the prayer and people think it may say well maybe you're in a dark night or you're maybe this is a period of desolation when and actually you there's just confusion about what you are experiencing i mean the, that I think is a, is people you you come into the church, you're all excited, you receive all these graces, and then you, you want to do all that, and we, they become confused. And then maybe a little bit of depression s- sets in because they're not sure. And then they hear terms like dark night, and they hear terms like spiritual desolation, and that's why the, the wise counsel is so important.
1: Yes, you know, there's there's nothing wrong with not seeing yet clearly what the Lord is asking. Certainly, we're always called to be doing our part to grow toward clarity in the, and actively doing so, not not just passively waiting, which would not be the case in, in, in people that you're describing here. People of very good will who want to do the Lord's will and just aren't sure that they found it yet. So there's nothing wrong with that. There's no shame in that. What's important is to be on the journey of discernment. And that would be, in terms of our conversations, that whole set of conversations that we did earlier on Ignatius's teaching on how to discern God's will in the various choices that we face. So I'd like to refer anyone who might find him or herself reflected in what you've just described to those conversations. It's a wonderful thing to know that our tradition, and Ignatius is not the only but the prime exponent of it in this, has a wisdom for us that there is a journey toward clarity in discerning God's will, that there are steps we can take, that there are spiritual means that we can can employ, that there are ways of recognizing God's response. So I'd I'd like to refer anyone in that situation to that teaching, which I think, together with so many in the Church, that he or she would find, I think, pretty helpful. It's so comforting to know that there is a way to deal with, With discerning god's will in choices that we face it's the difference between time passing and the the heavy sensation that i don't seem to be moving forward with this at all kind of like i'm spinning in place the difference between that so not knowing but feeling that nothing is really moving and not knowing but knowing that i'm on a journey that i'm employing the means and things are moving forward even though we don't yet have clarity in that second case there's so much more hope and peace now because we know that we are journeying wisely toward that.
0: We'll return to Spiritual Desolation, Be Aware, Understand, Take Action, with Father Timothy Gallagher in just a moment. A Prayer of St. Ignatius of Loyola We now return to spiritual desolation. Be aware, understand, take action with Father Timothy Gallagher. Is doubt an aspect of the dark night? Or is that desolation? I'm doubting your existence, God. Because when you see Mother Teresa, I, I wonder if she was in a dark night, if it doesn't seem as though she ever had a doubt. She always trusted. Uh, well, just pray. let's pray, let's keep going, believe. And, and miracles happened every day in her encounters with people through that love. But is doubt an aspect of either of those?
1: Well, like so many things in the spiritual life, three different people could say, I have doubts, and it could mean three very different things. So there's always an individual level to look at in this. One person might say, I have doubts about the existence of God and say this in very good faith, with very good will, maybe was never given any faith earlier in life or through whatever circumstances at at a certain point, lost any sense of faith in God, but a good person sincerely seeking the truth and who is open to learn and maybe on a journey pursuing that truth. In so many conversion stories, you see that so beautifully, people that don't know, that do have doubts, but don't just stay there. They're reading, they're consulting, they're praying, they're exploring, until the God who promises, ask and you will receive, seek and you will find, gives the grace and the doubts are resolved. Those kinds of doubts, I would say, are different from the real, true and beautiful experience of faith, but which is still without vision. We walk by faith and not by sight. Paul says. So their faith of its very nature means a a yes, a trust in what we do not see. So that that dimension will always be there in faith. That's not doubting, that's simply living the life of faith. So that's different from the kind of doubt that I just described. Another experience of doubt would be, uh, well, let's keep using the example of the woman in the 10 minutes of prayer. And let's say she does call her friend and she does begin the prayer and she loves it. She can see the fruits, weeks and some number of months have gone by, and she loves what's happening. But recently, the last week or so, it's been kind of a struggle. Uh, She hasn't really felt at the end of the prayer like much has really happened. And now she begins to, to doubt whether her prayer is really genuine, whether she's really growing. And there's a heaviness and a discouragement with this. Yes, that's very much an experience of spiritual desolation. That's the enemy at work. Be aware, understand, and take action to reject. And then I want to reverence the deeper level of the dark night. And I don't want to speak uh, too analytically, you know, or abstractly or speculatively of it. I would imagine that experiences of doubt could come in and out of this. Doubt about uh, where I stand in my relationship with God. I used to feel such warmth in prayer and such closeness in communion with with the Lord in prayer. Now my prayer is, is dry, it's arid, it's even painful. Am I going backwards in the spiritual life? Am I regressing? Uh, is something wrong? These kinds of doubts can very much be a part of the experience of the dark night. And that's why why spiritual direction is so important in the time of, spirit, of uh, the dark night. And when the director is able to identify the experience as the dark night in John's sense, then what the director will do is encourage the person as the person goes through this. So, like so many things in the spiritual life, a single word can mean very many different things. And there we've just looked at some of the experiences.
0: You know, I've heard it said, Father Gallagher, that John of the Cross, particularly this teaching, was designed primarily for spiritual directors, for those Carmelite priests who would be guiding those souls that were coming into this uh, reformed order of the Carmelites. So in, a, in some ways, our understandings of it, just as you've just broken it open, and it, it takes a little bit more than just claiming the words dark night because we can make it seem something that it isn't. You know, it, sometimes we confuse depression. We can c- confuse, as we've just spoken, frustration and many other things with it. And that's not what it's about.
1: No, so those that's why these distinctions that we're making now are important, and that's why, in part why I wanted this new book, because there's a, a further body of understanding about Ignatius' rules that I wanted to get out, as I said earlier, into the conversation. So depression is a non-spiritual desolation. Spiritual desolation is the garden variety tactic of the enemy. Garden variety in the sense that we all experience it just discouragement in the spiritual life. And then the dark night is a beautiful work of God that comes at a certain stage in the spiritual life. So this leads to a final question to raise, which is a practical question now. Having made the distinction between spiritual desolation and the dark night, what do we do in practice with regard to this? How do we navigate this in our own experience in the spiritual life? Just a few general things because, as I've said other uh, other times, the individual level of an individual's experience finally has to be looked at in an individual one-on-one setting. But we can say some general things about this. The first is that we all experience spiritual desolation. I've been teaching these rules for like, probably about 35 years now to all kinds of audiences. And so we look at spiritual consolation and spiritual desolation. I've never yet had one person say to me, I don't know what you're talking about. Everyone does. This is ordinary spiritual experience. It's the stuff of the spiritual life. There's no shame in experiencing spiritual desolation. What's necessary is be aware, understand, take action. All that we've been saying. Not everyone has experienced or has yet experienced the dark night. And that's the reason in part why this is uh, gets unclear for us because when we speak about spiritual desolation everyone knows exactly what that means once it's described it may be harder for us to to know in concrete experiential terms what the dark night uh, looks like because we may not have experienced it so that that's just one difference what that says is i don't think we should be too quick to name an experience that we have in the spiritual life as the dark night it might be But I don't think we too quickly get there. We need a little bit of clarity uh, and maybe some guidance in that. When does a person experience the dark night in John of the Cross's sense? Well, as we've just said, that comes at a specific point along the spiritual journey, and that is the transition from the more active forms of prayer to now the more passive and receptive and infused. Contemplation that John of the Cross and Teresa of Avila describe. So it comes at a specific point in the spiritual life so that those whom God is now calling on that journey, we don't call ourselves to it. Uh, we receive it if God chooses to give it. And if God does choose to give it, then at that point in, in whatever individual circumstances this will take in a person's life, God will invite the person to go through the dark night so as to be capable of the deeper union that follows. And then finally, I would say generally, and I have to say generally because we can't box the Holy Spirit. Look at Ignatius, 30 years of essentially pretty wayward life, has a conversion and within a few months is experiencing mystical. And in a few months it has mystical experiences on a level with John of the Cross and Francis of Assisi, uh, or look at people like Saint Benedict Labre and so on, a street person essentially, and a saint, mentally probably pretty weak in various ways, with various disabilities, but a vessel that received God's love in a heroic way. So I don't want to ever put absolutes on any of this, but I would say probably generally what we will see in a person whom God is calling to the dark night is a certain generosity with the Lord, a certain depth of prayer, dedication to one's vocation, maybe some years of of living in this way, and then prayer gradually becomes simplified as the person grows closer to God. But I say that uh, with an asterisk, because as I say, um, God's grace can work in any situation and in any human situation that we may experience.
0: You know, it's, it's compelling that you would use that example because I'm reminded of something I've heard about the fruitfulness that will come from a life that is, you know, on the spiritual journey that when you think of how a plant brings forth fruit, it's a natural experience, outgrowth that you can't make happen. It's something that it is born from the health and the growth of the plant. And from that, fruit is brought forward. We can cultivate it. We can try to give it all the nutrients and the care and plant it in the proper spot. But we can't make it grow fruit.
1: Prayer is always a grace and a gift. So exactly, you know, that's exactly right. If we use Ignatius' own vocabulary on this point, God is the protagonist in prayer. That's uh, St. John Paul II's vocabulary. But we also have a part, so the divine person has a part, and the human person also has a part in prayer. And obviously by far the greater part is what the protagonist, what God does. Prayer is completely a gift and a grace from God. But we also do have a part, and Ignatius' word for that is, our part is to dispose ourselves to receive that grace. So that's the active part. That's why we set aside time for prayer. Please God daily. Have a a faithful life of the sacraments. All the practices of the spiritual life. Spiritual reading. And all all the different things that help us. And then in, in John of the Cross's vocabulary, that's the active dark night of sense and of spirit. There is, even though that's only a sliver on the pie chart, God does ask that of us. So there is our part. But above all, essentially... All of this is gift and grace so that our part is to be faithful to the spiritual life and then to receive, to let the Lord lead and receive wherever the Lord will lead us. And this will be very different in different people's lives. And it's beautiful. Since we're quoting saints, you know how St. Therese faces this question of the different kinds of saints and answers it with the different kinds of flowers. You know, there are the strikingly beautiful flowers, and then there are the humbler flowers. But it's in the tapestry of all of these together that beauty emerges. And she sees that as an image of how God works in different souls. Remember how she quotes her sister Pauline when Therese is still a very young girl. And she's this question has come up. And uh, Pauline has her get a glass and then a thimble and fill both with water and then ask which is more full. We're, we're all just very different and God works individually in, uh, as he will with each one. Our part is simply to be as faithful as we can and then just trust that the Lord leads by the right paths as the psalm says. So there's no there's no pressure, there's no anxiety, there's no I should be here, you know, these kinds of things. Our, our part is simply to do our part and then to allow the Lord to lead. That's the first issue The Dark Night and Spiritual Desolation.
0: You've been listening to Spiritual Desolation Be Aware, Understand, and Take Action with Father Timothy Gallagher. This particular series is based in part on Chapter 4 of Setting Captives Free personal reflections on Ignatian discernment of spirits. You can find this book on Father Gallagher's website at fathertimothygallagher.org. To hear and or to download this episode, along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit discerninghearts.com. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts in cooperation with the Oblates of the Virgin Mary. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission. And if you feel us worthy, consider a charitable donation which is fully tax-deductible to help support our efforts. But most of all, we hope that you will tell a friend about DiscerningHearts.com and join us next time for Spiritual Desolation. Be aware, understand, and take action with Father Timothy Gallagher.